Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy. What can farmers learn from physicists? This month in Naked Astronomy, we'll find out how satellite imaging can help to understand and control crop diseases, as well as learn how gravitational waves will help us see further than ever before. Gravitational waves aren't attenuated by gas and dust, and it's not, you know, reflected and absorbed, just how like light is. But because it's the stretching and squashing of space-time itself... It doesn't care what's lying on the space-time. It's actually the space-time itself, like, like ripples on the surface of a pond that are moving, and then we're like the little boats floating on the surface going up and down. More about space-time ripples and how precise measurements of pulsars will help to find them coming up. And also on the way, a roundup of space science news, and we have the answers to your questions. I'm Ben Valsler, and this is Naked Astronomy. Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. Sometimes the best way to look at a problem is to take a step back and get a bit of perspective. And this is certainly the approach taken by Hugh Mortimer from the Rutherford Appleton Laboratories when considering the problem of crop diseases. In fact, they're getting so much perspective that they've left the planet. We're involved in a a European Framework 7 project. It's a big European Union project with many different partners from Spain, France, Germany, Holland. Our work that we're adding to this project is trying to look at disease in plants and forests from space. And so we have very high-resolution satellite images, one that was built at RAL, which is the RALCAM on Topsat, and which gives you about... a two and a half meter ground resolution per pixel which is actually fantastic it's very good so we can actually start to use these data to understand the color changes the pattern changes that we see from an image to an image to see whether we can identify disease in a crop or field identifying disease to me is something that you need a microscope for not a satellite so how are you going to be able to see what's normally a bacterial or a fungal infection from space so what we're doing is we're looking for key spectral changes key color changes and also identification through the pattern so if you get a an airborne transmitted uh, infection so uh, a disease then what often happens is you see small patches in the colour changes and the pattern changes. So you'll see a patchy network across a field. And that kind of gives you an indication that something's not quite right. You see discoloration, but you also see this patch. If we see striations, kind of tiger stripes in the crop, 
then we're pretty confident that there's probably some soil-borne infection. And so what happens is, as the uh, farmer ploughs the field, he drags the disease along in a straight line. And what often occurs is we see these nice changes in, in colours along in stripes. And so we can also look for those. So what sorts of diseases can you actually spot? I'm a physicist from uh, natural background and training, so moving into this new area of kind of biological understanding is, is a completely different concept. There's, it's a total new language. And I know that I'll probably get shouted at by my colleagues at the Food and Environmental Research Agency, but Phytophthora remorum, I think I said that correctly, is a disease that's quite prevalent in, well, has been noticed in the UK. And it's a quarantinable disease, which means that it's controlled across borders and so if people see it in the UK it's an immediate reaction that we should try and remove this or try and stop it from spreading. This is one particular disease that we've had an outbreak in the UK in uh, southwest of England and we've noticed it in the larch trees. Is it just a general colour change that says these crops aren't as healthy or can you actually learn something about what's going on by the way in which the colour changes? So we've got a second project wrapped up in this and what we're doing is we're looking at not only imagery from space but we're taking leaves from the trees itself and then subjecting them to tests and we're looking at the spectral changes in the infrared now this is not necessarily work that's been done too in depth before but essentially what we're looking for are color changes in the infrared but that are specific to stresses. So you can generally tell whether a plant's healthy or, or non-healthy by the fact that you can see it's browning or it's changing colour in some way. We get the same kind of colour changes in the mid-infrared, but if we look very high resolution, we can see these broad bands associated with stresses. So whether it's dehydrated, whether it has too much carbon dioxide, uh, whether there's enough nitrates in the soil, we can actually tell that by, by essentially the spectral changes that we see in the infrared. And so what we've been working on is a campaign to look at how disease will actually change the stresses and whether we can identify specific stresses associated with these diseases. And will you also be able to use these data to make predictions or even forecasts to say, we know that there seems to be a, an airborne disease in this area, generally the wind moves this way, so you need to test this field over here and the following areas? So what we're trying to achieve is a smarter way to actually allow the inspectors to go and target where they inspect. At the moment, it's actually quite a hard job for the inspectors to identify where disease could be prevalent. So by using airborne imagery, satellites, uh, aircraft, UAVs, what we can do is we can say to the inspectors that this is a suspect area and you may want to go and uh, just check it out. So in that way, we, we're giving the inspectors a tool, an analytical tool, to actually go and uh, do this. You've mentioned inspectors there. Are they the perceived end user of this information or is it also going to be distributed out to farmers so they can see what's happening nearby? They might need to take protective measures if a farm, maybe a county across, has got a certain disease. Who is going to be able to access and use this information? That's a great question. The project that we're involved in is specifically aimed at uh, the inspectors and the group of plant protection organisations around uh, Europe. So the end user in that case will be the inspectors. So we're giving them 
better methods, more uh, clever methods to actually identify targets and, and to go and inspect. However, with the tools that we're actually producing, we're trying to give um, essentially pattern recognition within satellite imagery, which is taken anyway. So we're almost giving the data providers, satellite imagery providers, uh, uh, another tool that they can use. And what's going to be the next step for you? How do we take this a bit further? What, what do we still need to know before we can confidently say there's this disease in this field? We've still got a long way to go. Essentially what we're doing is we're taking images from satellites where we know there is disease present. So we're working with the inspectors. They're giving us geo-coordinated locations that have got latitudes and longitudes and saying that that tree or this area is infected. So we then go and produce a training set on these databases and then we can then apply those training sets and kind of the, the rules that we've uh, imparted onto that training set into a model and then test other images. And where we're going to go from here is actually see how accurate we are in terms of determining whether disease is present. But it's not an easy job. There are a lot of different conditions uh, associated with times of year, different uh, weather patterns, weather um, changes. Even the time of day gives you different shading and different uh, colorations and shadows, which are very hard to overcome. But we're getting there. We're, we're getting to a point where we can actually identify disease over areas more often than not. Hugh Mortimer from the Rutherford Appleton Laboratories. Hugh was also recently a guest on the Naked Scientist podcast, explaining his work studying the atmospheres of exoplanets and how that has led him to be involved in giving scientific advice for Ridley Scott's Prometheus. You can find that at thenakedscientists.com slash podcasts. And now we join Carolyn Crawford and Dominic Ford for a look at what's been happening in space science news this month. This is a paper by Lars Bacave of the University of Copenhagen, which appeared in the journal Nature this month, analysing the early exoplanet discoveries by the Kepler spacecraft. Now, we've talked about Kepler before on the podcast, and you may remember it was launched back in 2009, and it's staring continuously at about 150,000 stars. And what it's doing is it's looking for dips in the brightness of those stars that might indicate that a planet is passing in front of them. And to date, it's identified about 2,000 candidate exoplanets, of which about 200 have been confirmed. Now, it's an interesting question whether you would expect to see equal numbers of exoplanets around different kinds of stars, or whether you would expect to see them preferentially around certain kinds of stars. Now, the most important property of a star is what we call its metallicity, which is the fraction of the star's material which is not hydrogen gas and helium gas. So this includes carbon and silicon and other very important materials for forming the gritty particles that start to accumulate together to form a planet. And in the formation model we have of a star and planet system, the central part of a collapsing molecular cloud formed into a core that becomes the star itself. But the outer material in that cloud around it collapses into a disk that we call a protoplanetary disk. And potentially, over the 10 million years or so that that disk exists, that material may collapse down to form planets. So I think you would expect that the higher the metallicity of a star, the more gritty material you would have in that disk which could collapse down to form planets. 
Now, in fact, what this paper has found is that although gas giants like Jupiter and Saturn form preferentially around high metallicity stars, in fact, terrestrial planets like the Earth and like Mars seem to form with equal probability around lower metallicity stars and higher metallicity stars. Is this the first time we've really been able to do this sort of statistical analysis of how different types of planets form? Is it just because we've found so much with Kepler now that only now do we actually have that data? The first exoplanet discovery came in 1992, so only 20 years ago. And the first exoplanets that we discovered were generally big ones. They were what we call hot Jupiters. Many of them were quite a bit bigger than Jupiter, in fact. And that's simply because those are the easiest planets to see. They block the most light when they transit in front of a star. They exert the biggest gravitational influence on their hosts. It's only now that we're starting to be able to see smaller, more Earth-like planets, and we're starting to be able to see how the probability of having those planets in a planetary system depends on the metallicity of the host star. So is this a reason for us to to care again about the results that we're getting from Kepler? There has been this exoplanet fatigue where we've seen lots of potential new planets, loads of them, different properties, and people do seem to be getting bored. It's certainly true that we've talked about exoplanets a lot on this podcast in the last three years. But what's really exciting about this is that there are a lot of stars in our galaxy with lower metallicities than our own sun. And up until now, we've thought those probably haven't had planets around them. Now, this paper suggests that they probably don't have planets like Jupiter and Saturn, but they might have Earth-like planets. And so in terms of habitable worlds in our galaxy, it looks like there might be a lot more planets than we previously thought. So Kepler has been such a success that we've actually been able to become bored of its results. But there are other new space telescopes coming on board soon. Carolyn? Well, yes, I just wanted to mention a new X-ray telescope that's been launched. It's called New Star, and it was launched successfully on the 13th of June. Now, we've already got a couple of X-ray telescopes in orbit that are doing brilliantly, so that's XMM, Newton and Chandra. But this new X-ray telescope works in what we call hard X-rays. So these are much higher energy X-rays than the current missions work on. And the more energetic the photons, the kind of more energy that's required to produce them. So these originate from some of the most exciting places in in the universe, you know, the most explosive events, the most energetic events, regions where you've got intense gravitational or magnetic fields. So it could be, for example, uh, collapsing stars, supernova explosions, black holes. The other thing about hard X-rays is they can actually travel through obscuring screens of sort of dust material that would absorb lower energy photons. And so if you have an obscured black hole region or some event that you wouldn't see at at lower energy X-rays, you can actually determine these x-rays and this new telescope is going to have a much better ability to resolve both spectra and also images than has been achieved before at these energies. So the actual telescope itself is is quite interesting because x-ray telescopes are very different from optical or, or radio dishes. The mirrors are more like kind of hollow tubes that are nested one inside each other that are almost parallel to the incoming photons and they have an enormous focal length. So the photons enter the mirrors come to a focus 10 metres further away in the detector. So 
this whole telescope, you have the mirrors at one end and then you have the detector 10 metres away and it's all anchored in place on a 10-metre mast. And, of course, this has to fly up to orbit. So you can't fly a 10-metre mast with these mirrors and detectors on as it is in orbit. So it's all folded up for launch. And then on the 13th of June, this was launched from a Pegasus rocket. So you've got the telescope strapped to the Pegasus rocket and then the Pegasus rocket was strapped to a Stargazer aircraft which flies it up to 12.5 kilometres, releases the rocket that then takes the telescope up to low Earth orbit. And they've successfully opened the solar panels and it's taking a week to gather enough energy from, from the sun's rays and then hopefully they'll start extending that 10-metre mast and if that all goes to plan, they'll be in a position where they can start looking at objects and start calibrating the spacecraft. It sounds like very complicated technology. Is that why we've not done it before? We just simply haven't had the capability? Yes, well, I mean, partly there is this problem is the the more collecting area you have in an X-ray telescope, the longer it has to be, which is the limit for the next missions, trying to work out how to get get around that. There have been inventive ideas where you have two separate spacecraft that go up and align themselves, so you have the detector on one and you have the mirrors on the other. And this extending mast is an interesting variation on a way around the problem. It is based on previous technology that's worked successfully up in orbit, so it's every reason to think it'll work. And... If the sorts of events that we're seeing are, are the sort of the highest energy events, does that mean that they are relatively rare? Are they few and far between? Will we be looking for a while before we see something or do we expect as soon as it's online to start seeing very interesting things? Oh, well, we should start seeing very interesting things already. We already know where they're accreting black holes or we have sources that we have detected hard X-ray photons, maybe haven't quite pinpointed where they are in the sky and we certainly know where there are hard X-ray sources and we haven't been able to look at the source in any great detail. So I think it has enormous potential. It's originally a two-year mission it's funded for and I think it's going to map out a lot of that sky in the time. And we'll have more astronomical news from Robert Massey of the Royal Astronomical Society later on. Still to come, how precise measurements of pulsar timings could be used to find gravitational waves. But first, Andrew Ponson tackles this one from Rex, who wrote in to ask how much heavier things would be if the Earth were to stop spinning. The basic point that this question is getting at is that if something is going round in a circle, it requires a force to keep it going round in a circle. So, for instance, if you take a heavy weight and spin it around above your head, then uh, you need to apply a big force to keep it doing that. The moment you let go of that object, it will fly off away from you in a straight line. So the same is true if something is sitting on the surface of the Earth. The surface of the Earth is spinning round, so to keep up with the surface of the Earth, there is actually some force required to keep that object going round in a circle. So if you look at an object sitting on the equator, just to keep it going round at the rate at which the Earth is spinning, does actually take not a completely insignificant force. Something like half a percent of the weight of an object is kind of used up in keeping it going round in this circle if it's sitting on the equator. So in other words, if the Earth were to stop spinning, then things on the equator would get something like half a percent heavier. 
As you go up towards the poles, however, this effect becomes smaller. If you imagine sitting on top of one of the poles, then the fact that the Earth is spinning basically doesn't affect you at all. So you feel the full correct weight when you're up at one of the poles and the Earth stopping spinning wouldn't make any difference up there. So everywhere else, it's something in between half a percent and zero. And Brian Chapler asked about the importance of having a magnetic field, especially if we one day want to terraform Mars. Dominic Ford. Well, some planets do have magnetic fields and others don't. And we think what it comes down to is whether the planet has a conductive fluid in its core. So the Earth, for example, has a molten liquid iron core which is able to support a magnetic field and that's why the Earth has a relatively strong magnetic field. Jupiter has high-pressure hydrogen in its core and that produces Jupiter's magnetic field. But we don't understand why different planets have different kinds of core and Venus and Mars and the Moon don't have particularly strong magnetic fields even though the Earth and Mercury in the solar system do. So what does that mean with regards to the, the habitability? What, what is it that a magnetic field does for us? In very simple terms, the magnetic field acts as a shield against the solar wind. This is the ionising radiation that the sun produces. And that means that we on the surface of the Earth aren't exposed to that harmful uh, radiation. But in fact, it's slightly more complicated than that. Because if you go to the North Pole of the Earth, there is a hole in the Earth's magnetosphere immediately above you and yet you're not exposed to harmful radiation because it all hits the atmosphere and the atmosphere absorbs those ionising particles before they reach you. It creates the northern light and it's very pretty, but it's not actually dangerous. And similarly, if you were to go to the surface of Venus, which has no magnetic field, you wouldn't be exposed to harmful radiation because of the very thick atmosphere above you. You would find it very uncomfortable for other reasons, the temperature was hot enough to melt lead and the, the, the rain of sulfuric acid, but the radiation wouldn't be a big problem for you. But that, in fact, shows that there are longer-term problems for a planet if it doesn't have a magnetic field, because this ionising radiation hitting the atmosphere is ionising the molecules that you have in the atmosphere. And in the case of Venus, you had in the past water vapour, H2O, and that was ionised by the solar wind into hydrogen ions and oxygen ions. Now, the hydrogen ions are very light. Hydrogen is the lightest element. So it drifted to the top of the atmosphere and then was lost to space. And so gradually, Venus has lost its water through ionisation from the solar wind. But that's a process that takes hundreds of millions of years. Now, going back to the example of Mars, the surface of Mars is exposed to the solar wind because it not only doesn't have a magnetic field, but also, more importantly, it doesn't have a very thick atmosphere either to absorb those particles. So Mars is not a very nice place to live at the moment. But people have talked with some degree of seriousness about whether we could terraform Mars and turn it into a place where we could live. And in short, if you were to warm Mars up a bit, then carbon dioxide, which is currently frozen onto the surface, would evaporate into the atmosphere. You would have other volatile 
molecules evaporating from the surface, and that would give you a thicker atmosphere. And because it was made of carbon dioxide, which is a greenhouse gas, that would produce more warming, and potentially you would get a, a snowball effect, and Mars would warm up and have a thicker atmosphere, and then it could have liquid water on its surface, and it could potentially start to look like quite a nice place to live. Now, over hundreds of millions of years, it would suffer from the problem of not having a magnetic field and of losing some molecules like water to space. But in the medium term, it could be somewhere that we could make habitable. The problem with all this is that the timescales for terraforming are very long. If you think about climate change on the Earth, the most pessimistic predictions of climate change are that temperatures are changing over tens of years. And we are 200 years since the Industrial Revolution and we have 6 billion people on the Earth and we have the industry to support their lifestyle. Now, if you want to make Mars habitable, we need to produce more dramatic climate change than we're currently seeing on the Earth with that industry supporting 6 billion people. So we need to get a lot of carbon dioxide into Mars' atmosphere, and I'm not quite sure where it's going to come from. And as always, you can get your questions into astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. There have been exciting things afoot in our solar system recently, and there are yet more to come in the coming month. But if our own cosmic backyard wasn't interesting enough, researchers now have found a way to see the very first stars. To find out more, I spoke to Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society. Well, I think uh, one of the exciting results we've had this month is from a meeting we sponsored up in Liverpool. It's a uh, conference on extreme events in the universe, so in itself, I guess what you might call the, the high-end stuff in astronomy. And one of the stories coming out of that is from a group, an international group, that are led by an Israeli scientist, and they've worked out a method, they think anyway, of trying to understand or trying to get an indirect detection of the very first stars in the universe. Now, I should stress that Nobody's done this before. We've, uh, we're building telescopes like the James Webb Space Telescope that will try to look for these objects, uh, but it's difficult because they're, they're well, if, if you're looking back that far in time, um, I suppose the, the infinite explanation you need here is that if you're looking a long way, then you're looking back in time because it takes light a long time to get to you, and so in theory you can see a long way back towards the Big Bang. And uh, the context then is that the first 1% of time after the Big Bang is within a couple hundred million years. Now, that's much, much younger than anybody's managed to detect in that way before. We get sort of an understanding about the residual heat of the universe, what's called the, the microwave background, which is the, the heat of the Big Bang that's distributed across the cosmos. But we've never managed to look at the first stars. And so I think, although this is a, a kind of predictive result, what they're saying is that they can use radio telescopes to look at particular emission from these objects. It's a very significant one. So why is it that these first stars in particular are interesting? There's obviously a lot that we could learn about the very early universe, but why the stars themselves? The best idea about the, the first stars in the universe is that they were actually quite different to the ones we see today. And the reason is that there were far less of what astronomers called metals around. Uh, it's a funny definition. In, in astronomy, a metal is anything heavier than helium. So you have hydrogen and helium and every other element, every other compound is effectively a metal. It's just a definition because hydrogen and helium dominate the, the matter that we can see. And the very first stars are thought to have come into being with very, very low amounts of that, just the stuff that was formed in the Big Bang. 
lithium, a little bit of lithium, and, and not much else. So their chemistry is completely different. The way they run their nuclear reactions is thought to be uh, quite different as well. They, a lot of them may well have been a great deal brighter and more luminous than anything we see today. Uh, and it gives us actually an insight into the, the earliest epoch in the cosmos. It tells us, you know, from that we can kind of trace the entire history of the universe from that point onwards. And so that's why it's a really significant result. Now, the group are quite... And they're acknowledging it's indirect. They said, look, you won't be able to see these stars individually or anything like that. And it may be decades and decades before we have telescopes that can do that kind of thing. But it is the first time that there's been a serious method to try and think about how we can detect the radiation from them and distinguish it and actually think about where galaxies clump together, where these stars are found, where the dark matter was at that point. So it is actually quite a big step forward. So what is it that they're actually doing and what is it that's the novel step in that? What's new about it? Well, I mean, firstly, it's one of the few ways that we can think of to find these stars. You know, there are very few telescopes at the moment could come close to doing that and nothing really on the horizon, although the James Webb Telescope will try to see the first galaxies. But the novel idea is they're going to use 21-centimetre radio emission. Now, uh, we measure the characteristic of electromagnetic radiation, which includes light and ultraviolet light, X-rays, infrared, and radio waves, and we do that by giving it a wavelength. That's one of its key characteristics. 21 centimetres is quite long. I mean, that's that's, uh, many millions of times longer than the wavelength of light. And so you need... Uh, large radio telescopes to detect it and to get any kind of uh, any kind of resolution and their idea is that this particular emission will tell them something about these stars that they think they can t- detect this kind of web of stars in the in the very early universe using this now nobody's done it yet what they're basically doing is almost like a call to arms they're saying that some telescope arrays are being built that would detect these stars and, and they're really saying look this is something you can go and use them to do so that's going to presumably go on to the science mission of things like the SKA, which we've also heard this month. It now has a has a site. In fact, has two sites. Exactly. It's it's you know any kind of future radio astronomers will be looking at this and thinking. I hope so. Anyway, looking at it and thinking this is some of the exciting science we can do with a coming generation of telescopes. And just as we're progressing in the optical with with the European Extremely Large Telescope, we're, we're building the Square Kilometre Array. We're building the the Low Frequency Array, low far across Europe. These are the kind of uh, targets those telescopes will be looking at. And from cutting edge, incredibly distant, very interesting new science bringing it right into our own backyard. Jupiter's going to be doing something exciting this month. Yeah, on the, on the 15th of July, Jupiter is going to be occulted by the moon. Now, uh, an occultation is just when one object moves in front of another. So in this case, the moon is much closer to the Earth than Jupiter is. That's, that's a good thing for a whole host of reasons, but it's, it's going to block out the light of Jupiter. So Jupiter will appear to slide behind it as the moon moves in front of it. Now, What's nice about this in the UK is that you will see, if you've got a decent small telescope or or possibly even a good pair of binoculars, you can see Jupiter and its four bright moons, the ones discovered uh, or at least understood by Galileo, sliding behind the planet. So it could be quite a spectacular event. If you've got a small telescope, it's very easy to see that Jupiter is a, a big world rather than a star and set against the lunar landscape in the foreground it really could be something to look out for the bad news is that it's going to take place at uh, around two o'clock in the morning but it is a sunday so you know at least you don't have to go to work most of us anyway don't have to go to work in the morning (laughs) so very interesting for amateur astronomers to be able to see something they otherwise wouldn't be able to see is this sort of event useful for researchers for scientists as well Question: What you can do with, with stars being occulted by the moon, you can use it as a technique to, to effectively sur- 
convey the edge of the moon because they're point sources and you can see when they blink in and out if they just go in what's called a graze or they just run along the edge of the moon as it moves past. Uh, in this case, it's slightly harder because the, the moons are all obviously not point sources. You know, they're, not, they're, not, they're close enough that we can see them as disks in some cases. So it's slightly more complicated to do that kind of thing. But I think I, my best prediction on this is there'll just be some spectacular pictures of it happening. And, and the nice thing is that the southeast of England is quite well placed for it. The, uh, the greys, which is probably the most spectacular bit, sort of runs um, roughly in a line down from the, the wash down towards Bristol in the southwest. And another spectacular event in our own backyard, and this time one that won't be seen again in our lifetime, you managed to catch a glimpse of the transit of Venus. I was, I was one of the few people, I think, in the UK that managed to do this. I got up at an unearthly hour, uh, drove up to the Cotswolds um, to a site up there near Cheltenham, uh, Cleve Common, uh, and I have to say, I think it felt pretty bleak at uh, 4 a.m., but the, uh, the sun rose. We couldn't see the sun because it was behind a thick wall of cloud, but then we were lucky enough that just... I mean, literally probably for about one minute and then for maybe another 10 seconds, the sun poked out, had a telescope, with a, obviously with a solar filter on, pointing the right direction. So uh, I, I and a few people with me managed to see it. I think that looking at the pictures I've seen, I'm guessing it can't be more than about 200 people around the UK that did this. So I feel quite pleased because having seen the one in 2004 and knowing that the next one is until 2117, it's, it's one of those things you try not to miss. And to ask the same question about Venus as I did about Jupiter, what is it that we can actually learn from watching that happen, beyond it just being a spectacular thing to see? It's absolutely... It's, the transit of Venus is, is a kind of test bed for uh, a, a transits of worlds around other stars. There's the best example of a contemporary science mission is the Kepler Observatory, which is currently uh, in space looking at the same patch of sky, monitoring something like a couple of hundred thousand stars and looking for these kind of events. If you imagine a star with a world going round it and that world passes between the star and the Earth, then the light of the star will appear to dip down a little bit because it blocks some of it. What watching the transit of Venus allows you to do is to calibrate your instruments to understand what a planet the size of the Earth looks like moving in front of the star. Now, I should stress that Venus is not like the Earth. You know, it's, it's an incredibly hostile world, close to the sun and very hot and so on. But the one thing it does have in common is that it's the same size. And that makes it a nice test bed. So astronomers who are interested in looking at transits of uh, planets around other stars like to look at events in our own solar system to test the way their instruments work. Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society. Now, Brian Williams, writing from South Africa, asks how galaxies can ever collide in a universe that's expanding. Well, yes, this is a very good point because there's been a lot of publicity about the forthcoming is the wrong word, six billion years' time that Andromeda and the Milky Way might uh, collide together and merge to form a, a bigger galaxy. And it does, at first glance, seem sort of counterintuitive because all the evidence for this ever-expanding universe now all ideas of dark energy that were expanding even faster, you get the idea that galaxies are getting pushed further and further apart from each other. But what you have to realise is this expansion happens only on the very largest scales, and that's scales larger than even clusters of galaxies. So here we're talking tens of millions of light years, enormous scales. And if you've got two galaxies separated by that kind of distance from each other, the mutual gravitational pull between them is far too weak because gravity drops off very sharply with distance. So... If you have much smaller scales, so within a few millions of light years, a few tens of millions of light years, the attractive force of gravity is going to dominate. 
you know, this is why the solar system is all held together by gravity, even a single galaxy. Oh, and it's what holds a sort of cluster of galaxies together. So if you have two galaxies close enough, gravity wins and pulls them together. And if you like, they, they drop out of the generalised expansion, which is still going on, and you have a, a, very, a pocket of very localised motion. And I was trying to think of an analogy which would explain this, and probably a very fatuous one, but say if you thought of penguins sitting on icebergs the icebergs are still being carried apart from each other on the general drifts of the ocean but the penguins can still interact on the icebergs so you get these sort of local pockets of interaction even though clusters of penguins are being pushed apart further than by these you know these much more global expansion properties of the ocean currents so is there just a very simple mechanical cutoff at which beyond this distance these galaxies will never come closer and within that distance we know that they're definitely one day going to collide. Well, of course, it's not that simple because it depends on the amount of mass concerned and so what may be true for two galaxies interacting may be slightly different between two clusters of galaxies interacting and indeed... Even though clusters of galaxies are the largest structures we see in the universe where everything's gravitationally bound, we do think that they are merging together. They're in a process of making up superclusters of galaxies. And so there isn't a hard and fast line about this structure is going to interact with this structure. So it depends so much on the scales of the mass that you're looking at. And bearing that in mind, how can we say for certain that the Milky Way and Andromeda are definitely going to collide? Well, we're seeing them moving together the rates are sort of a thousand kilometers per second and so if you track that forward there isn't sufficient space between us that's going to expand and overcome that gravity on that you know we're only two and a half million years light years apart so on those scales gravity is definitely going to win Gravitational waves are distortions in space-time that radiate out from incredibly powerful objects and events, such as pairs of neutron stars or colliding black holes. They haven't been directly detected yet, but many researchers are trying to do so using a range of different techniques. Chiara Mingarelli, a PhD student at the University of Birmingham, is one such researcher. We use pulsar timing arrays. And so a pulsar timing array is a bunch of pulsars which have very regular times of arrival at the Earth. And if they're delayed by a certain amount of time, then we can infer that a gravitational wave has passed between us and the pulsar. And so the sources of these waves and the frequency band that we're looking at, which is the nanohertz frequency band, um, the sources are supermassive black hole binaries and galaxy mergers. And so these signals, when they pass the pulsar, that wave is modified. And then the same gravitational wave can modify the signal at the Earth. And you can think about it in sort of a triangle configuration. And so what happens to the signal when it gets from the pulsar to the Earth is that there's about 3,000 years of evolution of the binary between those two points. And so we can actually see the difference in the signals at these two points and then infer what the binary is doing in those 3,300 years. So in order to see gravitational waves clearly and in a defined way, you're looking for 
individual huge items like pairs of black holes or pairs of galaxies colliding, could we not see the same effect from a very large amount of material that's very spread out that exists between us and the pulsar? Or would you see a different effect? Different masses of black holes and neutron stars both produce gravitational waves, but the supermassive black holes produce the gravitational waves we expect to see in the frequency band um, that's accessible to pulsar timing arrays, so about 10 to the minus 9 hertz to 10 to the minus 7 hertz, Um, whereas detectors that are on Earth, like LIGO, or GEO in Germany, or Virgo in Italy, um, they're sensitive to the tens of hertz to the kilohertz range, and so that's more neutron stars that are closer by and and stuff like that. So for pulsar timing, there are some things that produce lots of noise, obviously, and in order to be sure that we have a gravitational wave, we actually need tens of nanoseconds and timing precision. And this is only available with a handful of pulsars right now. And that's why all of the pulsar timing arrays around the world are getting together to form the International Pulsar Timing Array so they can share their best-timed pulsars and then make um, a detection of a random background of gravitational waves from unresolved sources. And we can't resolve the sources right now because we don't have enough signal with respect to the noise that you might be talking about. But the more pulsars we have, with the better times, the more likely it will be that we can start maybe resolving individual sources, like the supermassive black holes that I'm interested in. But right now, they all fall in the same frequency bin. So not one is big enough to be on its own and to be individually resolvable. They would have to be very high mass and have uh, very high frequency, but by very high, I mean 10 to the minus 7 hertz. (laughs) So it's all... uh, Um, Take it with a grain of salt. (laughs) You've almost made it sound very easy that that we have these arrays of pulsars where we can measure the timing, and when we see the timing change in a defined way, we know that we have seen a gravitational wave. Now, seeing gravitational waves is, is big news, so I assume it can't really be that simple. Well, no. So in order to get these, you know, this, these tens of nanoseconds in timing precision, there's a huge amount of reduction that goes on with the data that we get. And the reason that we use more pulsars is because the gravitational wave signal is correlated between pulsar pairs and the noise isn't. And so the more pulsars we have, the more the signal gets built up at the Earth. And so the higher signal-to-noise ratio you get. And this is why everyone's very interested in sharing our best pulsars, because then we can really boost the signal at the Earth. But there's a lot of, of noise in the data, obviously. So there's a lot of noise from the interstellar medium. So basically what we, what we see from the pulsars is the, are these, these radio waves, but they're not all at the exact same frequency. And so some arrive earlier and some arrive later, because of the interstellar medium. And so it's kind of like looking through a tunnel of electrons and changes an effective kind of refractive index. So like when light goes through water, right, depending on the wavelength that you're looking at, it'll get bent in different ways. And so um, we have to mitigate those effects and so that we have just like one nice kind of peak. And so there's a lot of folding in on itself to get a nice kind of coherent, well-defined peak Um, for the pulsar data, and then clock corrections, because these pulsars are so stable that, you know, our clocks might add errors onto them when we try to actually time them. So um, 
yes, there's a lot of work that goes into even getting these times of arrivals and then even more work used in getting these, these timing residuals, which is this you know, 30 to 50 nanoseconds that, that I was talking about that we achieve now. So there's a lot of work and a lot of, um, a lot of data is going to be needed to convince anyone that we're seeing gravitational waves, but, but rightly so, because if you're making a statement like that, then you really need to be sure. And so um, for the random background, we hope to produce a characteristic curve that can only be created by a gravitational wave propagating through our signals. And this is called the Hellings and Downs curve. And so this will really be the one kind of shape that we can only get in our data if it comes from a gravitational wave in our, that goes through our pulsar timing array. So it sounds like the physics is pretty well understood, the observations are taking place and will be improving. So really now, it's down to an awful lot of very complicated maths and understanding the models. How, what do we need to do to refine them? There's two different ways to analyse the data right now. So there's uh, something called the Bayesian method, which compares different models. And so I say, here's my data. This is what my signal would look like if I had a gravitational wave. And so what's the likelihood of this signal if there's a gravitational wave? And then I do the same thing, saying that there's just noise. And then I see which one has a higher likelihood. Now, the problem with this is that you never have an absolute answer. You can just say that model A is more probable than model B, but it doesn't tell you exactly what it is. But actually, the best limits on the background have already been set by this kind of analysis. And the other one is um, something called a frequentist analysis, where they do correlations. And then that will give you a sort of absolute number as to how much you can trust your results. And so right now, there are these two competing fields um, And it's hard to say what analysis will be used in the end, but I think the strongest detection will need to be analyzed by both methods to convince both parties that there is indeed a signal and indeed the rest of the world, because if I analyze the data using Bayesian methods and I say that my model prefers noise and you do it the other way using uh, frequentist methods and you say, well, there's actually quite a strong probability that there is a gravitational wave here, then... What are you going to do? So you definitely need to have both camps agreeing. And what will it mean to researchers and to astronomy in general when we find or when we confirm that we have seen gravitational waves? What differences will that make? Well, that's really an amazing question because before the advent of radio astronomy, there were so many things that we, we didn't even know what to ask because we had no idea what was out there. And then when we could see radio waves and we could see so far in the distance and we could see all of these sources that had been redshifted to such long wavelengths. And so with gravitational waves, we think something similar might happen. So there's already been indirect detections of gravitational waves by monitoring uh, neutron star binaries. And in fact, that won a Nobel Prize in 1993. But to the direct detection would tell you things about the waveforms which tells you things about the sources that create the gravitational waves. And so this would settle a lot of arguments, um, particularly in my field, between some people who argue about um, galaxy formations and and how they formed, and are they through mergers, or did they just condense, and, and what happened in the early universe. And so this kind of information might help fix a lot of uh, ongoing battles, even in cosmology, because the uh, Big Bang 
left relic gravitational waves, which are all around us, which have a very long wavelength now. But who knows what's out there? The thing is, is that gravitational waves aren't attenuated by, by gas and dust, and it's not, you know, reflected and absorbed, just how like light is. And that's why it's so difficult to see far away using electromagnetic radiation, which is a fancy word for light. And so gravitational waves are equivalently gravitational radiation. But because it's the stretching and squashing of space-time itself, it doesn't care what's lying on the space-time. It's actually the space-time itself, like, like ripples on the surface of a pond that are moving, and then we're like the little boats floating on the surface going up and down. So, so it's a really great way to see things that are very far away that we'd never be able to see. So it's more like listening to the universe instead of seeing it. They're more kind of, you can think of them as sound waves in that sense. Chiara Mingarelli from the Gravitational Waves Group at the University of Birmingham. And that's nearly all we have time for this month, but you can find more space science in a recent edition of the Naked Scientist podcast where we went looking for aliens and explored the origins of life on Earth. In that programme, we were joined by Jill Tarter from the SETI Institute, and she inspired this question from John Gammel. How will we know if we really do see evidence of intelligent life elsewhere in the universe? And what Jill Tarter said was that what we're doing when we're searching for ET is we're looking for radio signals which we don't believe can have any natural origin in physical processes that we understand. So, for example, we might look at the radio spectrum of a star and we might see a very narrow band signal from that star and we might have no natural physical process that produces radio waves of a very specific frequency and we might then conjecture that there was a planet orbiting that star with a civilization on it with perhaps a TV station on that particular frequency. Now, in these searches, it's very difficult to quantify exactly how sensitive we are because we don't know what kind of signal we're trying to look for and we want to be as open-minded as possible about what that signal might look for. The best way to quantify how sensitive we are is to ask if the aliens looked exactly like we do on Earth, how far away could you detect that with current telescopes? And with the square kilometre array that we, we were talking about earlier and a two-minute pointing on a star, you could detect the Earth at a distance of about 10 light years and see that it appeared to have TV and radio channels on particular frequencies. So that takes us out to the nearest few dozen stars and with longer uh, pointings, you could get to probably many uh, tens or hundreds of our nearest stars. Now, interesting question, what would we do if we saw a signal from one of these stars? Well, it would be subject to very intense scrutiny. And thinking back about the history of radio astronomy, I can think of one example where researchers did briefly think with some seriousness that they might have seen ET, and that was when pulsars were discovered. These are sources in the radio sky that blink tens or hundreds of times a second. And at the time, the researchers on that project didn't know of any process that could flash that fast. Uh, with a bit more thought, they realised this could be neutron stars that they were seeing, and in fact, this was the first time that a neutron star had been seen. 
So if we see one of these unexpected signals from a nearby star, I think there will be very intense research into what could be produced from a signal. There will be monitoring of a signal to see whether it changes. And it might well turn out that it's a physical process that we weren't expecting. But I think that would be a very big reward for the research in itself, even if it doesn't turn out to be ET. So I certainly think looking for unexpected radio signals could lead us in some very exciting directions. So the telescopes that are being used for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence might actually turn up some really interesting science, even if we never get a confirmed sighting of intelligence outside our own solar system. Yes, and I think it's a good point that often, although you have to write a science case to justify when you build a new observatory what what science you think it will produce, often the very best science is that which you weren't expecting at all. It's for things that you couldn't even make predictions about when you were writing the science case. And finally, Ahmed Youssef asks if lightning can strike anywhere outside the Earth. Well, this is a really nice question because we know all about lightning on Earth and then actually extending those observations to elsewhere in the universe is quite an intriguing challenge. Now, I will say I'm going to confine myself to our solar system, but that can serve as a good example for what else may be out there in our galaxy. So lightning happens when you've got an electrical discharge between clouds during a storm. So first of all, you're going to need a planet with an atmosphere that's got condensed cloud layers on. So you can immediately rule out places like the Moon or Mercury without an atmosphere. But, of course, we do have the gas giants where you've got enormously deep atmospheres surrounding a rocky core and we know these have got storms in. You only have to think of the great red spot on Jupiter or the great dark spot on Neptune. You've got an internal heat source, you've got the condensed cloud layers, some containing water ice, and we know there are storms that go on within these atmospheres. So, for example, with Jupiter, Galileo spacecraft flew past in the mid-1990s, and they've even imaged lightning strikes about 100 kilometres down in the cloud tops on the night side of the planet. And that's since been confirmed by Cassini and New Horizons spacecraft on their flypasts. And it's interesting because you see repeated flashes over and again from the same storm regions of clouds, suggesting that these storms are active for quite a large part of their life. And the other thing about the Jupiter storms is they seem to generate lightning probably 10 times less often than on Earth, but individual bolts are about 10 times more powerful. So again, it's quite different from what we see on Earth. What I find fascinating is that even before the Galileo spacecraft took pictures of these lightning flashes on Jupiter we knew there was lightning on Jupiter because when you get that discharge in the visible wave band it manifests itself as that lightning strike but you also get electromagnetic radiation all along the spectrum right down to low frequency wave bands so on the earth if there's a lightning strike it's accompanied by radio signals and they've got different characters and things called spherics and tweaks and whistlers is where the signal gets dispersed in frequency because it travels a long distance. When Voyager 1 and 2 went past Jupiter in the 1980s, they detected these radio signals called whistlers, a characteristic of a lightning strike. So we knew there was lightning in the cloud tops of Jupiter. And again, from Saturn and Neptune, we haven't got images of lightning strikes, but we've got those characteristic radio signals that accompany them. So it seems to be quite common within the deep atmospheres of the gas giants. 
So it's obviously not just limited to Earth, but we've talked about these deep atmospheres on giant gas planets. What about the the rocky planets? Uh, Well, you see, Mars is long expected to have lightning because it's got all these sort of dust storms that are very intense, and again, these produce lightning on Earth. It's called dry lightning because it's not associated with a, a rainstorm or anything. And again, we detect the, the radio signal that accompanies the discharge. So we have evidence for this dry lightning on Mars and no images from any of the, the missions on Mars. And indeed, the discharge would more look like a sort of glow in the sky rather than sort of lightning strikes. And similarly, for Venus, there's some evidence of radio discharge. But again, it wouldn't be associated with water clouds. In that case, it would be um, clouds of sulfuric acid, which is, is quite interesting. One place that we would expect to see lightning discharges is on Titan. If you remember, this has got a very nitrogen-rich with a sort of methane mix in the atmosphere. And they reckon the conditions are sufficient that you could build up enough electrical charge to trigger a lightning strike. But so far, they haven't detected any of the radio signals on Titan, but which is, again, a little bit surprising. So it does seem that lightning is quite endemic throughout our whole solar system and, by extension, one would imagine through many of the other exoplanets within our galaxy. And down here on Earth, obviously, we've studied lightning quite a lot. We know that it does all sorts of very interesting things, including things like fixing nitrogen into the soil. Do we think that it's doing the same sorts of things? Does it play a role on other planets? Very likely, because lightning, as you say, it can cause these chemical reactions both in the atmosphere of the planet and on the surface. And one could even speculate it might play a role in the chances of life occurring, of course, because there's just the idea that life may have originated on Earth and prompted by the role of a lightning strike very early on. And so it could perhaps potentially help life originate elsewhere in the universe, make those complex molecules necessary. That's all for this edition of Naked Astronomy, but you don't have to wait a full month for more astronomical audio. In two weeks, the space boffins will be looking ahead to NASA's attempt to land a rover, roughly the size of a mini, on Mars, and which space tourism company should you choose to take you to the final frontier? I'd offer you excitement, I'd offer you adventure, I'd offer you some wonderful experiences with people like yourself, But really at the heart and soul of it, we'd offer you an opportunity to explore who you are and what you're made of. Join Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson for the Space Boffins podcast in a fortnight's time. And I'll be back in a month with more news, interviews and your astronomy and cosmology questions. Get in touch at astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.